namo tassa bhavatu arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhavatu arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhavatu arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang There's a question here which somebody has sent to me which says whilst I might at times feel like killing off the messenger is it not better to view suffering as a necessary message not as a symptom of failure? I've slightly edited that although I don't think the meaning has changed. Whilst I might at times feel like killing off the messenger, is it not better to view suffering as a necessary message, not as a symptom of failure? In the talk that I gave just over a couple of weeks ago about how wholesomeness strengthens the heart. The point of that contemplation was that if we want to heed the teachings that the Buddha gave us, then we need to prepare ourselves to get this message. The message is that if we relate to life heedlessly, then we're going to suffer. For the Buddha, who related to life wisely, there was no suffering. Yet if we, even if we have great faith in this possibility, great confidence in this possibility, it still requires a lot of strength and skill and ability to meet the dukkha, to meet the suffering of life and, and this questioner here expresses the, the impulse to sometimes escape or get rid of the messenger to get rid of the suffering to get rid of the teaching at least there's an instinct, there's an intuition that that's not the right approach that we need to somehow find a way of listening to the messenger to listening to suffering. Now, I am aware that, under the, particularly under the current circumstances of the global pandemic and a lot of people struggling enormously that, who speak about, specifically about how we deal with suffering may not necessarily be thoroughly welcome. However, if we don't understand this point, then even though there is a possibility of retraining our attention so as to not feel like we're victims of circumstances, even though there is that possibility, we have these teachings, we can miss out and 
merely wanting to go back to how things were before, how we were all having a great time. And the reality is we weren't all having a great time. Even the everyday common and garden variety form of suffering of just you know, stubbing your toe is disagreeable. And not to mention falling out with somebody and, and having a misunderstanding and then making a mistake and feeling crestfallen with regret. Yeah. The small moments of suffering are always with us. And do we learn from these or do we push them aside into unawareness and cling on to moments of happiness? relative happiness. If it was the happiness that the Buddha knew, if it was a real happiness, then it's not momentary. It's unconditioned well-being, unconditioned ease of being. However, the kind of happiness that most of us uh, would be familiar with most of the time, the kind of happiness that we're interested in pursuing, generally speaking, is a relative sort of happiness. And the Buddha didn't deny that life can indeed be very agreeable. There's certainly plenty of pleasure to be found in, in the companionship of good friends and, and in, in pleasant circumstances to live in. And indeed, life can be really joyous at times and, and exhilarating and, and, and heartwarming. However, life can also be intensely challenging and heartbreaking. And what this teaching offers us is a way of preparing ourselves so that when it is heartbreaking, so that when it is challenging, that we don't miss the opportunity to learn. Everybody struggles at some stage in life. Do we learn from our struggles? From the moment we're born and we you know, start to learn how to walk, we Inevitably, we fall over and we hurt ourselves. And, and this is normal. And as we grow up, sometimes the hurt gets even more dramatic. And, and the point is, are we learning as we're growing up? And, and so this teaching that we have, is, a, is a, it is a message. And we need to learn how to get this message. Now, getting the message requires that we do a certain sort of work, and this is the inner work, the work of training our spiritual faculties, the way of training our attention. If our attention is not trained, then it very naturally goes towards that which is comfortable. That's just normal. Nobody... Nobody likes pain. No creature likes pain, not just human beings. All creatures would prefer to avoid pain if possible. And if we're not careful, then our attention will simply drift towards that which is agreeable. And then when that, is dis that which is disagreeable comes along, what happens? We turn away from it. And in turning away from it, we don't learn. There's no way that we can set up our life so as to never be disappointed and to never feel pain. That's inevitable. So 
this practice that the Buddha encouraged of disciplining attention so that we can direct it in ways that are skillful. We can heed the message, in other words, when, when there's difficulty, when there's disappointment, instead of ignoring it, instead of pretending it's not happening, we have that strength, we have that agility of attention to be able to feel what we feel. This is disappointment. This is anticipation. We can't get rid of these moments of challenge and disappointment. Up to a point, of course, we can arrange our life so we don't have too much. However, no matter how hard we try, there are going to be moments of disappointment, even uh, despair. And so disciplining our attention so that when it, that's what's happening, we, yes, we can heed it. So we don't just try to get rid of the messenger, we heed the message, pay attention to it. And paying attention to it is not just an intellectual exercise. Buddhism is known for being intellectually refined and sophisticated and profound. Most of us probably come to Buddhism or many of us would be coming to this path of practice because we were impressed intellectually. The wisdom of the Buddha is undeniably impressive. However, if all we're doing is relating to these teachings conceptually, the idea of the Four Noble Truths in the Buddha's articulation of how to approach life in a skillful way recognize that there is suffering, that there's a cause to the suffering, and then his expression of the, the profound realization of freedom from suffering, and then the explanation of the path leading to freedom from suffering. We can have a conceptual understanding of that. However, that is wonderful. That's amazing. And thank goodness we have that explanation. However, we need to go much deeper than that. Just a intellectual understanding of suffering is not going to take us where we want to be. The idea of suffering and suffering are very different. You can maybe imagine it, what it's like you know, to maybe break your arm and you read in a book and somebody broke their arm and, but the pain of having broken your arm is a very different reality. Like, here we are, what is it, 8 o'clock or something at night, and we could be imagining breakfast. The reality of breakfast in 11 hours' time is a very different reality, a totally different reality. Eating breakfast is a totally different reality from the experience of thinking about breakfast, thinking about suffering, thinking about freedom from suffering, thinking about the Buddha's teachings. Yes, that has its place. However, that's very initial that's not nowhere near enough. Um, we need to train our attention so as to really heed the message when there's suffering, whether it's breaking our arm or whether it's disappointment or whether it's anticipation, whatever form of dukkha we may be having to endure. Can we prepare ourselves 
so as to pay close attention to it. Remembering what the Buddha said, it's through not knowing two things that we remain lost in the state of unawareness. Not knowing two things, not knowing suffering, not knowing the cause of suffering. And this is, so this is not just a belief, this is bringing mindfulness to the actual whole body-mind experience of disappointment. You booked a builder to come and do a job, the, the boiler is broken, you've got no hot water and and the boiler man says, yes, I'm going to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. Absolutely, yes, I'll definitely be there. And then 9 o'clock in the morning, the boiler man doesn't turn up. What do we do? That's called disappointment. What do we do? Are we able to be there for disappointment, feel disappointment in the body, get a little hot, a little agitated, think disappointment, come up with stories about what a hopeless case the, the boiler man is, and next time we're going to tell him what we think of him, and... The energy is already by that stage flared up through our hearts into our heads and is now running around telling us all sorts of stories and we're disliking, even hating the boiler man who's inconvenienced us. And is that meeting dukkha? Is that really heeding the message? Is that really paying attention in a skillful way so that we can learn? For all we know, maybe the the boiler man, maybe his wife is sick in hospital and he had to take her to look after her. However, that's often our response when we don't get our own way, we feel disappointed, we react and um, compound the situation. Instead of having possibly at least patience or even concern for the well-being of the, the boiler man, we quickly judge and create suffering for ourselves and maybe even suffering for other people as well. This, of course, this habit of creating suffering out of life is made worse if we've been brought up with the misfortune of having been told that happiness is the goal of life, that what we need to be striving for is happiness. And if we've been told that story, then what is the result? When we're unhappy, we tend to define the situation as wrong. Either I'm wrong, I'm failing, or the situation is failing me, and so we easily fall into judging and resisting. And probably, as we all know, that judging and resisting suffering doesn't help. It's certainly not going to make us more present for the experience so that we can learn what we need to learn. This moment of disappointment is just that. It's a moment of disappointment. If we cling to it, what happens? Is it possible to feel disappointed and simply feel that feeling in our guts, in our shoulders, wherever, in our neck, wherever we feel disappointment? And just feel it. We can't stop the reaction happening. We can't stop life being disappointing or sad. If there's sadness, you, you watch the news or read the news and hear the degree of dishonesty and deceit and behavior that's far from beautiful that passes as normal these days and you don't feel sad, well, that would be really strange. Sadness is a suitable reaction to the circumstances that we're living in. 
the lack of respect for decency mm-hmm. is sad. And so sadness is a perfectly appropriate response. Mm-hmm. What do we do with the sadness? Can we feel sad without becoming lost in sadness? Now, now if we've been brought up to think that happiness is the goal of life and if you're successful, you're happy all the time, well then when sadness comes along, it's quite likely that we will resist it. We won't simply feel sad and learn from it, learn that there is something we can do about our attention with mindfulness, with restraint, with wise reflection, with these spiritual tools, we can approach the feeling of sadness in different ways. And the more we cultivate these faculties, these abilities, the more skilled we will be in how we approach life in its joy and in its sorrow. And particularly in this contemplation and in its sorrow, how do we meet the sorrow of life, the sadness of life, without getting lost in it? As the Buddha was saying, it's not seeing through, not seeing two things that we stay lost in the state of unawareness, not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. And when we don't see it, then we very easily tend to deny it. We use our faculties to manipulate feelings manipulate ourselves mentally, to block things out, to distract ourselves with stories, with blaming, with criticizing. We manipulate our feelings, we manipulate our breathing, we press down the anger, we deny that we feel something, we contract our chest, refuse to feel what we're feeling. And when this habit becomes chronic, then there's a risk that we we become chronically unhappy. Generally speaking, when children are born, if you look at children, yeah, there's some, some crying and some, some confusion, and, but also a lot of joy. And, you know, sure, children carry with them their genetic propensity for, for suffering and, and karmic inheritance. Trust in that, I trust in that. However, there's a lot of joy, a lot of gladness, a lot of... Uh, exuberance and enthusiasm and then what happens as the years go by how do we get to the state of being chronically unhappy chronically anxious chronically cynical how do we get to that stage well we get to that stage by not heeding the message we unfortunately not taught that we need to develop our faculties so that when life hurts in whatever way, on whatever level, that's a message. And the barometer, if we want to see how we're progressing the practice, is the barometer is how long does it take us before we put our hands in Anjali and say, welcome, respected teacher, please teach me how to let go. Because that's the message of suffering. We're clinging to something. It's not life that's the problem. The Buddha was alive. So how long does it take us when we're experiencing a moment of disappointment or sadness before we put our hands together in Anjali, metaphorically speaking, or maybe physically if you're on your own, but at least mentally greeting the moment of suffering, saying, respected teacher, please teach me how to let go. 
Now, that might sound a bit weird, but maybe it's worth experimenting with, learning how to bow down to suffering, bow down to the pain of remorse. If we've made a mistake and our heart is burdened with remorse and regret, remorse and regret, they're not a problem, they're part of the healing. If we get caught up in neurotic guilt, well, that's something else. But if we make a mistake, we've said something or done something, and then there's remorse and regret, that's part of the healing. However, if we're used to just indulging and clinging to moods, well, then that can be excruciatingly painful. What do we need to do? What's the message here? The message is how to feel what we feel without getting lost in it, how to feel remorse, let it teach us so to be more mindful next time. And then in support of learning that, we can bow down to the pain, bow down to the suffering. Please teach me what I need to learn. So this is the priority in, in practice. And if we don't have this as the priority, then it's easy to be distracted by the temptations to seek superficial happiness. And there's a Dhammapada verse, 166, which says, knowing the way for oneself, walk it thoroughly. Do not allow the needs of others, however demanding, to bring about distraction. And when we hear that verse, do not allow the needs of others, however demanding, to bring about distraction. It sounds like it's really dismissing other people's suffering and considering their suffering as a distraction. And we need to look at that carefully, really consider what was the Buddha saying there. The temptation to occupy ourselves with benefiting others without realizing the risk that what we could be doing is just spreading around our old unacknowledged pain, that's, that's quite tempting. It's hard work to really acknowledge the pain of life, to acknowledge the difficulty of growing up, to acknowledge the task of taking full responsibility for ourselves. It's, it's really hard work. And, and it sometimes it can be tempting to occupy ourselves with with trying to benefit others. And it's understandable in many cases people haven't received the teaching that, that there is a real cause to suffering. We're not just victims of, of life. And there are causes and we're the agents of those causes of suffering. And so the impulse to generate benefit for others, of course, is wholesome and, and regularly encouraged by the Buddha. However, that's not the priority. If we do that, then we can be making the mistake of spreading around our own unacknowledged pain. Our, our potential for seeing clearly is obscured by our aversion for suffering, our resistance to suffering, our own and other people. We can't stand seeing other people suffering, and so we busy ourselves trying to help them. Is that a right motivation? Of course we want to, and it's skillful to make an effort to help others. However, the priority needs to be that we train our faculties 
so as to go in the direction of learning to see where the real causes of suffering are. The real causes of suffering are not outside ourselves. The real causes of suffering is something that we're doing, something we do with consciousness, something we do with awareness, this habit of clinging, this habit of resisting. So if we really want to benefit others, we really want to generate benefit and be helpful, then, then we can be learning this task. We can be applying ourselves. We can be training our faculties, giving ourselves the time and the space to get to know just where, when and how we are resisting reality. This habit of resisting suffering, this habit of judging suffering. We're not pretending this is an easy task. This is really going against the grain. However, this is what the Buddha encouraged. Through not seeing two things that we stay stuck in unawareness. Through not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So the message when suffering comes our way is, how can we learn to stop resisting suffering? Not indulging in suffering, not getting lost in suffering, but to meet it, to truly meet it. And once again, this is a whole body-mind training. It's not just merely a head exercise. Yes, having the theory, reading the books, listening to Dhamma talks, this is, this is wonderfully useful. However, the real moment of practice is when we feel impacted by the pain of life, sadness and disappointment, despair. Maybe you've had a string of disappointments and the mood that comes up is despairing and the feeling of despair is hopelessness. Is hopelessness ultimate? Is it really ultimate? Is sadness ultimate? Is any mood ultimate? Surely if we stop and think about it, all moods are changing. All mind states are changing. Just as like the joy, the pleasure of being with friends, when you meet up with friends and then, then you depart and then there's a sense of loss and separation. These feelings are perfectly natural. There's nothing wrong with them. The task is how to accord with them. So when despair impacts us and we feel hopeless, the skill is how to feel hopeless without becoming lost in hopelessness. And this again, as I was saying, is a whole body-mind training. Yes, we have the theory in our heads that this is possible and that gives us confidence. Maybe we've met other people who talk about it in a way that inspires us and encourages us. But the real practice is in the moment that it impacts us. Are we there for it? Do we have the mindfulness? And that's the alertness, the watchfulness. Do we have the restraint? That's the skillful inhibition, not just the um, blind control freakery that all make up all deluded egos. All deluded egos are control freaks and all good at that. That's not what skillful restraint is about. Skillful restraint is a, is a choice to inhibit a compulsive reaction so that we can get interested and then wise reflection. Investigate not just in our heads, but investigate the sensation of hopelessness. And then breathe, keep breathing with that sensation of hopelessness. 
go walking with that sensation of hopelessness. Imagine the space around hopelessness. Hopelessness can't be ultimate. If hopelessness was ultimate, we wouldn't even be able to be talking like this or reflecting like this. There's a space, there's an awareness in which hopelessness and despair have arisen. So we can imagine that space, take a deep in-breath and create a physical sense of space. And this way, exploring, inquiring into our experience of suffering. The temptation to merely think about suffering and assume that that's going to resolve it is unfortunate. We need much more than that. We need to be willing to feel what it feels like when life impacts us in a, a disagreeable and a painful way. The idea that we're supposed to be happy and if we're not, we're failing, surely that's a regrettable way to approach life. Nobody has only happiness and no unhappiness. The Buddha didn't have only happiness and unhappiness. When he, for the first time, came across old age and sickness and death, he was unhappy. He didn't like it. feeling of disillusionment came, and that's unhappiness. And However, for the Buddha, that was the motivation to begin on the journey of inquiry into the possibility of freedom. And so likewise for us, when not just the pain of old age, sickness and death, which is, can already be considerable, but uh, the small moments, the small moments of disappointment, let's use them to strengthen our faculties, to strengthen our abilities, not judge them, not resist them, use them, welcome them. As I said, put our hands in Anjali and say, welcome, respected teacher, please teach me how to let go. So surely, rather than happiness, this kind of interested approach to life, an aspiration to live our life in a way that takes us towards clear seeing, to understanding, is a more suitable aspiration. And, and for anyone who does discover, to any degree, increased understanding and clear seeing, then they've got something really valuable that they can share with others. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayangamagatayasadukarangadamase. Sa-